Hey guys, as coders and billers, we get it. Healthcare compliance can be a hassle, inconvenient, and a headache that never goes away. That's why they've developed EpiCompliance, an easy-to-use software that helps you stay up-to-date and on track with ever-changing requirements of healthcare compliance. This cloud-based software covers HIPAA, privacy and security, OSHA, and the ACA, OIG, Medicare, Waste, Fraud, and Abuse compliance requirements. It includes forms, policies, tasks, and mandated compliance training, all in one easy-to-use interface. Do you need to send and organize your business associate agreements to your clients? You can do that with EpiCompliance through their Business Associate Center. And most importantly, in our profession, EpiCompliance covers you with billing and coding for waste, fraud, and abuse compliance. Don't risk getting on the CMS, HHS, OIG list of excluded individuals and entities, which is a permanent record on the internet. Ready to stay up to date and compliant every month with EpiCompliance? You have to do it. Did I mention it's required by law? You might as well do it right with EpiCompliance. Right now, Life as a Coder podcast listeners can save 20% on their subscription by visiting epicompliance.com forward slash Ozark and using the discount code Ozark20. That's epicompliance.com forward slash O-Z-A-R-K and use the discount code Ozark20. That's O-Z-A-R-K-2-0. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello, this is Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. Welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, and our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We have a disclaimer that our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on our years of experience in the coding and billing industry. And our goal is to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. Today, I'm talking about common issues in billing for optometry and ophthalmology. Several years ago, I had the privilege of being the revenue cycle manager uh, for an ophthalmology practice as part of our services here at Ozark Coding Alliance. And we, of course, build for a ASC facility and clinic charges for, of course, the surgeon and the optometrist. They had several locations, so there was a lot going on. We had credentialing. We had, of course, billing and coding. We had to be aware of documentation issues. And of course, some of those non-covered services. So we're going to talk today about some of those common things that if you're coding and billing for an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, things you have to know, especially, of course, if you code for ASC procedures, knowing the difference between the facility and, of course, uh, the professional side of things. 
So one of the things uh, as a coder that you need to be aware of is the differences with the I codes, the exam codes. And that, of course, is something that I dealt with on a regular basis, trying to go back and forth and decide, okay, is this billable as an E&M visit level? Or should I be coding my 92002 and 4 for a new patient um, or the subsequent visits? Yes, there are different codes uh, for those eye visits uh, when you can get that proper documentation, you can bill and get a higher reimbursement um, over and above those normal E&M visits that we bill, the 99202 to 5 and 5. Now, it is really nice that our eye doctors have the ability to choose, uh, but of course, they have to be aware of documentation when deciding whether or not to, to bill the regular E&M services or the medicine section codes for eye exams. So we do have the two levels, the two and the four. The two, of course, for a new patient or established um, is the evaluation um, with initiation of a diagnostic treatment program, intermediate. And then, of course, the four is, of course, comprehensive and it does have in this description one or more visits and we know as CPT coders when we see that in our book it means that includes one or more visits so uh, when it, we look at that we see the same of course with the four so we want to talk about the documentation some of the differences between the codes and how we understand uh, when to use them so what is intermediate visit well this of course would be something that's a newer existing condition there's going to be a new diagnostic or, or management problem that they're going to have to look at. It may not be related to the primary diagnosis, but they are going to have to document that history, that general observation. Um, they're going to have those external ocular and adnexal examinations, any uh, maybe other diagnostic procedures as indicated. And of course, there's a lot of possibles in maze. So they may use the myodraeus for ophthalmoscopy. And so then we come to the comprehensive section. So with the comprehensive, of course, um, there's going to be very similar things, history, general observation. Um, they're going to have, of course, though, that external and ophthalmoscopic examination. This is, of course, also going to have the gross visual fields, the basic uh, sensor motor examination. It does sometimes include the, uh, the biomicroscopy, um, examination with the cycloplegia or mydriasis. Um, it also includes the initiation of any diagnostic and treatment programs, just like the intermediate was. But you can see, of course, I'm going to put in my show notes um, some little snippets. Um, kind of makes it visually easy to understand the differences, um, the additions in those, right? So you're going to see when it comes to the regular components, yes, history exam, um, the, the examination, the differences between uh, the intermediate and the comprehensive. And then, of course, um, we have the additional components. Um, now, for the intermediate, it may include that mydriasis for ophthalmoscopy. Um, but again, we're going to see other items in addition to that in the uh, comprehensive section. Uh, there are other types, of course, of things we're going to look at. But the main thing is, of course, having those basic requirements that we understand have to be there. Now, of course, for the reimbursement, you know, a lot of providers are, are concerned about the reimbursement for that. And on an RVU level, you know, you're going to see a considerable increase in RVU value uh, for the uh, ophthalmologic codes um, versus the regular E&M codes. 
And another uh, thing that physicians, of course, look at is reimbursement, right? They're concerned about the reimbursement. So you can lose a significant amount of money and revenue in your I codes if you're not, of course, paying attention to your documentation and billing them in appropriately. There are times where, yes, it is more appropriate to bill an E&M visit, a level four, um, rather than maybe uh, a 92004. There may be times where that's better, right? And we look at the RVU value. Um, there is a higher value for a 99204 versus a 92004. Uh, there are instances where, of course, we may have a lower E&M level with maybe exam, history, and MDM. So a 99202 would have a significantly lower uh, value than a 992, I'm sorry, a 92002. So there are times where that would be more appropriate. And even the 92004 is a higher level or value than a 99203. So I'm gonna put all of these tables in here, some of these um, RVU values so you can see the differences. Uh, but I do recommend always, always looking at the, the differences and doing your comparing of your billing reports from year to year. See where you were the previous year and how you can improve in the following year. Uh, that will give you um, indication of what codes are you billing more of. You can look at your documentation and see where you can improve, where you can do that provider education. And of course, a lot of education comes in understanding the elements of, right, those, those I codes, right? So when we talk about that, you know, get into that documentation with your providers. Let them know the basic elements of that ophthalmic exam what's included and what's required specifically by Medicare, right? They have their requirements on documentation. You can look at your local MAC carriers too. There's a lot of great information out there. Those regional contractors, they put out there for specific things, things that are covered, non-covered, especially. But understanding um, those other procedures, right, too. Other procedures that are included as part of those um, ophthalmic services and knowing which can be reported with that um, and what's are reported separately and what's included, things like that. Those are important things to know. So I'm going to put some great resources, especially from the American Academy of Ophthalmology, um, really great information that they give us, FAQs that I love. And some of this information is, you know, several years old, but a lot of it is so still valid and we always want to keep up to date um, and we want to keep up to date on all of the things that we um that we can find out there for our specialty, especially for those in ophthalmology. Another thing we want to talk about, I know it's not our patients, right? Their favorite thing when they come in the office and they get that uh, bill for the refraction. It's so important that as a practice, not just with this, but any practice, when you have a procedure or a service that you routinely offer or you routinely provide that you feel is important in order to, of course, examine the patient and to give them proper measurements, as we say, for the refraction. It's important. Our ophthalmologists, our optometrists, they want that done. They need that done to, for the proper of care for that patient to make sure and they have the right measurements, right, for their vision. So it's not covered, though, right, by Medicare. So we have to understand our payers. We have to understand what they cover and what they don't cover. Refractions are not part of the CPT-defined medical exam. So they are billable separately, but we always have to pay attention to our payer. They are separate from our I codes, um, and so we can bill them separately. Um, but when should we bill them, right? We need to understand that Medicare, they, of course, say that it's of course, um, is not something that they cover. It is considered statutorily excluded. So then our question comes, how much should we charge for this? Uh, some offices, of course, um, may charge like $10. Other patients or may see a charge maybe of $20, $25. 
the patient's paying out of pocket. So, you know, the approach that some take is try to make that as low as possible, right? Um, but it is something that they do charge for and that your insurance does expect you will charge the patient for. It's a service you're providing. Um, we understand that we expect our patients to pay their co-pays and deductibles. We have a contract with our payer, just like they have a contract when they signed up for that insurance, right? So we try to explain that to our patients, uh, you know, in a tactful way, because we understand a lot of these patients, they don't maybe understand their benefits and they come in thinking they're going to get a free exam, their free, you know, uh, well exam for their eyes. And that's included right in their, in their insurance carrier. Uh, covers that, but then they get this charge for the refraction and they don't understand why they're paying for this. Uh, they didn't maybe understand it was part of their policy or that it was non-covered, even though it is part of most policies that does cover, does discuss that. Uh, most Medicare insured patients don't read all of the ins and outs of coverage and non-coverage. They just don't have the time for that. That's what our job is, right? To understand those things. So we bring that information to our patients. We let them know. We can get out the explanation and benefits and we can explain to them what everything means if they will want us to. Uh, but of course, having a sign, like I mentioned, out in your waiting room, making sure they understand it's right there. They can't ignore it. It's part of their financial obligation. The paperwork that, that we give them should have a form in there telling them what the refraction is, why it's important, and why it's not covered by some insurances. So they're not blindsided and they understand. So later when they say, oh, I didn't know about this, you can, of course, tactfully tell them, well, we did include it in your in, uh, incoming paperwork that you've filled out when you came in the office and we do have a sign posted. I'm sorry. I do apologize that you that you weren't able to see that sign. Um, but unfortunately, it is not covered by your insurance and we are expected to, to collect that at this time. Have you heard? Now the CCS exam is available without restrictions. Now is a great time to jumpstart your coding career with one of the most popular certifications in the country. The majority of employers require a CCS credential, and at Ozark Coding Alliance, we're here to help you achieve this goal. Join our workshop this July for only $129 and earn five CEUs. You can register at ccscoder.com. Um, so you can take a, a conservative approach. You can take, um, you know, that tactful approach to the patient and let them know. Um, you aren't required uh, to explain these things to them, but it is part of customer service to do that. And the next thing comes into play, we talk about the ABN form. A lot of clinics, um, they are aware of this ABN form, right? But what do we understand when it comes to statutorily excluded services? There is a question that comes up. And part of the frequently asked questions that we get on some of your MAC carriers' websites, the first one we come to on the one that I use for uh, Novitas is, is an ABN required for statutorily excluded items or services? And the answer is no. An ABN is not required for statutorily excluded services, even though providers may voluntarily provide one. Now, I work in routine foot care as well, so we often provide that because we do have that routine foot care that is statutorily excluded. But as a courtesy to our patients, we do provide that form for them up front so they can understand what they are going to be expected to pay. It just gives that added, you know, um, you know, benefit of, of giving them informed consent, right? They can decide if they want it or not. So that's important. Now, when it comes to using the ABN form for things that are potentially non-covered by Medicare, they're not statutorily excluded, but we may expect them to be denied because the diagnosis the patient has. So we give the patient opportunity to tell us, do you want this service? Um, or do you want to um, decline the service? And then you can give them those options. 
There are different modifiers uh, that we have to be aware of when we're coding for services that require uh, an ABN form to be signed by our clinic. There is a modifier GA. This is, of course, to notify the insurance that we did give an ABN notice to the, the patient, and they, of course, agreed to have the service um, that we did provide that. Then we have the GY. This is, of course, when you know it will be denied and that it doesn't meet the qualifications for a Medicare benefit. You're gonna put this on the non-covered line um, on a claim. And so what that means is that you're gonna, of course, report that service to Medicare, and they're going to, of course, pay the other lines on the claim, and they're not going to deny the entire claim, right? So if you are going to be reporting something that you feel may or may not be covered, you're going to report that with that GY. The importance of that is so the other lines on the claim do not get denied, right? The only thing that we have a difference here, of course, is the statutorily excluded ones. We don't necessarily put them on a claim form because they're statutorily excluded. And another thing that I love talking about, of course, as you know, is ICD-10 CM guidelines. Now, there are several guidelines that we come into contact with when it comes to ophthalmology services, when it comes to surgery. Now, for the surgery, there are some procedures that, of course, aren't covered and uh, that, of course, require certain LCD policies to be followed, coverage guidelines by several payers. There are some Category 3 codes, some new technology, a lot of new technology every year pops up with ophthalmology. And so it's always important as a coder and a biller to be on your toes when it comes to uh, these services. Now, one of the things I want to talk about is, of course, the glaucoma codes. There are a lot of guidelines when it comes to um, the guidelines for uh, ophthalmology when it comes to glaucoma. Really, when it comes to the guidelines, there aren't that many eye-specific uh, uh, guidelines, but there are some specific guidelines when it comes to glaucoma. I will be putting in my show notes some helpful handouts uh, from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Um, one from the American Glaucoma Society specifically with all of our regularly used ICD-10 uh, CM codes. Always keep up to date. Always check your, of course, seven characters. Always check your types, right? So with glaucoma, we have several types. That's why it's so important. And remember, we have two eyes. And with the glaucoma and many eye codes, they do have the right, the left, and the bilateral option. So always check that. You may have a patient in one eye. They may have specifically open angle with borderline findings, low risk, and then they may have in the other eye, open angle with borderline findings, high risk. So it's very important for you as a coder to be very clear with your providers, and if you're gonna be educating them, we need those specific words, low risk, high risk, borderline. We need to know if it's open angle, narrow angle. We need to know um, if it's um, angle closure, primary angle closure. We need to know if it's capsular glaucoma, all of these things I'm reading out from these the list of codes that we have in our book, and I'm astonished when I look at documentation and I'm getting unspecified every time. I'm having to use unspecified glaucoma, which of course is non-covered for many of those procedures for glaucoma. Uh, we have to be very careful when we're coding for those procedures. Now, I want to um, kind of point out that the handout I'm going to put in my show notes is so valuable, you guys. It talks about uh, the differences in the mild uh, versus early stage, the moderate stage, the advanced stage. And going along with ICD-10 coding, I always want to bring out, and uh, it's really important uh, that physician, clinic managers, uh, coders, billers, everyone involved in the financial aspects of the clinic and the facility understand LCD policies. Uh, there are a lot of them for eye procedures, um, eye services, and you need to know your MAC carrier. 
So where do you live? What is your regional carrier? I live in, of course, Northwest Arkansas. So our regional carrier, of course, is Novitas. We have a handful of those on cataracts, glaucoma treatments, um, some of the blepharoplasties, of course. And you look at places like First Coast. There are a lot more of those LCD policies out there, uh, non-covered services, uh, guidelines for the, the OPTs, guidelines for injections, visual fields, the, the YAG laser, all of these things uh, that other MAC carriers may not have a policy on. So it means like they don't really pay attention to the diagnosis code. They just, of course, medically necessary, of course, they don't have a specific policy on it. So when you open up these policies, make sure you're very aware of what is out there for your MAC carrier. If you're billing Medicare, a lot of your commercial policies, they may have their own. So it's really a good idea to do that. Get out on the American Academy of Ophthalmology and review their billing and coding uh, topics. Uh, there's a lot of uh, blogs and articles. Some of them are recent. Some of them, of course, are older. But the, va the value of the information is still there. Um, there are so many reimbursement opportunities missed with things like injections. Um, it's really important to understand um, the injections because a lot of MAC carriers have these policies. You also need to know how to build them, right? You have to have specific documentation um, to bill them even. So you have to have, of course, the diagnosis, of course, is it covered? Uh, where is it being injected into? What's the medication name? Um, how much was injected? Do you know how to do your conversion? If the procedure code, the HICS-PICS level 2 code, the J code, if it is in milligrams, do you know how to um, report that um, according to uh, what it, it refers to? So if it's one milligram per code, um, how many milligrams are being injected? Are you discarding some of that? Are you using your JW modifier if required, if you have to report how much you used and how much you discarded? Um, of course, the route of administration, how did you administer it? There are so many things that you have to be aware of. Now, there are some programs out there, believe it or not, and that patients may or may not be aware of that help them cover the cost of some of these injections that they need. They're really important and they, they help the patient. So if we're aware of some of these programs out there that, that cover the cost, of these procedures, um, of these injections, then please, of course, let your patients know that those programs are out there so they can benefit from them. Well, these are just some of the tips that I wanted to talk about today because we have so many things to talk about, but let's talk now um, about some of the more specific areas um, that we wanna talk about when it comes to surgery. We talked about the clinic procedures, and this now I wanna talk about surgery because there are a lot of surgery guidelines, things to understand, about ophthalmology coding when it comes to surgery. Back in 2018, I took my uh, COPC, my Certified Ophthalmology Coder exam. And when you take a certified of a specialty exam, right, you see a little different um, aspects of how to take that exam. We take it based on looking at not only the procedure code, the diagnosis code, and modifiers that are applicable. There are several types of surgical procedures that are, of course, coded in ophthalmology. So let's discuss a few of them. First of all, let's talk about cataracts. Cataract surgery is probably the most billed surgery when it comes to ophthalmology. Most uh, surgeons uh, schedule cataract surgery frequently. So there are many codes uh, that we can use. Um, there's, of course, the extraction of the lens and lens material. There's the kind with the implant, the intraocular lens. So for instance, uh, 66982, Probably 8.4 are most commonly used, so that's, yeah, that's of course described as the extracapsular cataract removal with insertion of the intraocular lens. So this is a one-stage procedure. 
Um, it includes, of course, um, it has the different techniques in the description, but it also mentions the word complex. Um, it requires complex devices or techniques that are not used in a routine cataract surgery. Um, and then we have, of course, the um, extracapsular cataract removal with insertion of intraocular lens. Um, and then we have, of course, that's the one stage procedure that's not complex, right? So between the 8.2 uh, and the 8.4, we do have differences. They're both the extracapsular cataract removal, uh, but of course, um, one is including more uh, complex. Um, it may re require the expansion device of the iris, suture support, and all of those things. So when we look at those documentation tips, all of those things that we need to know, so again, I'm going to reference information from the American Academy of Ophthalmology that in order to determine, based on your documentation, if a procedure is complex, there are four questions that they mention that we can ask ourselves. So is it a myotic pupil that will not dilate sufficiently, requiring the use of special instruments? Does the intraocular lens, the IOL, need additional support, like a tension ring or an intraocular suture? And is this a pediatric case that includes the implantation of the IOL? That's a good question. And is the cataract considered mature, requiring the use of dye? Now, when I looked at some of these complex cases previously, I had to look for the dye. I had to look for those rings, um, those documentation pieces that include those things. So if you look at that de definition, the description of 66982, you see that iris expansion device. You see the suture support. All of those things that they put in during that procedure that make it a more complex procedure. The documentation needs to clearly support that it was complex, just like anything else that we document as complex. Just calling it complex does not support the code description because it needs to have that definition. It needs to have that supportive documentation giving you all those pieces that identify it as complex. So definitely look into your documentation and be aware of those differences. And of course, uh, one of the bane of my existence, some of the reimbursement issues we had in ophthalmology was for our cornea transplants. Uh, it's taken me years to recover from all of the headache and issues we experienced from that. But when it comes down to it, my, my best advice is of course, just to make sure you have that coverage in place. Don't schedule a procedure, please, please, please. Do not schedule a procedure just because you need it on the schedule. So many providers I, I've worked with want to push out those surgeries, and I understand it's you need you need that volume, you need that to cover your expenses because you purchase this these products, right? You purchase the supply, uh, and it, it costs money. So that's another thing too. If you work in revenue cycle management, you might be a code or a biller, but if you're responsible for the cost of things especially if you own an ASC and you have a clinic and all that, you have to be constantly aware of the cost. So you compare the cost of what your what products you're purchasing um, to, to, of course, supply for that procedure. And then you say, okay, what's the reimbursement for this? What's, which payers, what is their actual reimbursement for this? And my cost. Am I going to be able to make any money on this? Um, how is this going to affect my, my bottom line? Some providers may choose not to even schedule it at their ASC because of the cost, and they may actually schedule it at the hospital because the hospital has, of course, more resources, more, more uh, revenue to, to, of course, be able to take that, that hit if the product costs, you know, from that, that provider of, of that product. So think about your payer. So, for instance, for these cornea transplants, United Healthcare has a corneal surgery 
um, including corneal transplant and refractive surgery coverage guidelines. And they'll tell you it's applicable to which plans. So always pay attention to that. Look at, to see if a referral is required. Look to see if authorization is required. And I will tell you, yes, it is. Sometimes they even will have um, a physician pre-authorization. So you're going to, of course, submit those records uh, for that review as required. And you're going to look at that policy. You're going to say, okay, these situations are covered in certain circumstances after a review. And then these situations are covered without medical necessity review per the treatment application guidelines. So if there is just for refraction correction, um, it mentions in the policy for correction of refractive errors, the American Academy of Ophthalmology has stated that spectacles are the simplest and safest way to correct a refractive error. So we're not going to be able to get it covered if it's just for refraction correction. But um, if there are things that are medically necessary, like the corneal transplant, um, keratoprosthesis, corneal resurfacing, all of those things are covered under their policy um, here listed. So if we're going to do a cornea transplant, um, we have to know the codes, right? So why are we doing this? What is that cornea uh, tr transplant procedure? So for the coding that we do for the primary procedure, of course, we have to know the code ranges. Uh, we have code 65710, uh, 30, 50, and 55, and we have, of course, the 65757, which is that backbench add-on code. So always make sure that's there. But so, so important for those of you out there who have an ASC, always, always, always build the V2785. This is so you can get paid for the actual tissue that you're, of course, purchasing um, from the iBank. And so uh, Corneagen is one that many, of course, will use. And of course, they'll send their acquisition form. Um, they'll, of course, um, give you that cost. Um, you'll get, of course, um, that cost base. You'll submit the charges for the corneal tissue acquisition using that code to get reimbursed for what you paid them for, right? So always, um, of course, look at your cost. That's why I said earlier, you know, look at your facility costs. How much is it costing you to pay the iBank for this tissue? And then are you getting the proper reimbursement from your payer? Uh, some payers, you know, your contracts might be out of date. So you're going to have to contact your, your payer to maybe update your contract to make sure you're getting the proper reimbursement for that. And maybe you're not making that much profit, but hopefully you're at least getting reimbursement, um, you know, from the um, surgery code uh, to, to basically give you that extra amount you need to cover the cost um, over and above what your cost uh, from the tissue bank is uh, versus what you're getting from the insurance uh, for the V2785. So let's talk about some of the codes that we have listed here uh, to report the cornea transplants. Now we have several here. I'm gonna of course start with uh, the 65730. Uh, this is of course uh, one of the main ones that we use. It of course it describes it as penetrating, but it says except in aphakia or pseudophakia. And then we have the aphakia and the pseudophakia separate codes. So for the 65730, uh, they all have that word penetrating, right? For most of them do. That refers to the thickness of the cornea. They're, of course, indicating that full thickness. So they're going to measure the cornea size. But if their 65730 is to be reported, um, that's referring to patients who still have that natural lens or are phagic with the lens. Um, and so 65750 is for patients who have had cataract extraction surgery or are aphakic without a lens. And then 65755 is for patients who have an artificial lens 
or are pseudophagic without a natural lens. So keeping that in mind, looking at those descriptions really helps us keep these codes straight. So we know the differences here between those codes for those cornea transplants. Now, earlier we mentioned the add-on code for the backbench work, and you'll see in your CBT codebook, it does mention that it has a primary code, right? The 65756, which is the keratoplasty cornea transplant endothelial. So you might see the term DSEC, of course, abbreviated on your op note um, or in the order, and that stands for uh, the decimets stripping endothelial keratoplasty. So what they're going to do uh, is, of course, um, they're going to perform this cornea transplant uh, for indicated endothelial dysfunction. So you'll have, of course, several codes for that, um, but it is reported with 65756 and the 65757 for the backbench work. But uh, we understand that the add-on code only applies if the surgeon also performs that uh, lamellar dissection of the donor tissue. If the eye bank is the one doing that work, then the surgeon's not going to charge that backbench preparation, and they're just going to report the 65756. But again, always, always, always report your V code um, so you can get, of course, reimbursed for that tissue on the ASC side. Next, I'd like to talk about some of the Category 3 codes that our eye surgeons use. You might be familiar with the MIGS devices, those minimally or microinvasive glaucoma surgery devices. So we talked about the importance of LCD policies earlier, and of course, many of these Category 3s uh, policies do have LCDs to look at. Uh, so these, of course, there were some that are not FDA approved that were withdrawn by certain um, companies and those that are. So always check if your particular insurance covers these devices because they are considered new technology and they don't have an official CPT code yet, um, but some of them are FDA approved um, and, and so forth. So you wanna make sure your, your insurance carrier covers them. Uh, but some of the common ones that we see are the Hydrus micro stent, the eye stent, and the Zen 45. So definitely look at the coding um, for these um, when we look at these. Now, most of the um, companies will use the 0191T um, for that, for those stents, for the eye stent and the hydrus. And then we have the 0449T for the Zen. So it's really important that you always look um, at the guidelines for reimbursement and for coverage guidelines. So let's look at the 0191T. This, of course, is the insertion of the anterior segment aqueous drainage device. And this, of course, is without the extraocular reservoir into that trabecular meshwork. That's the ins initial insertion. And then they have an add-on code of 0376T uh, for the add-on code for each additional device insertion. And of course, it's going to remind you to code that as primary with the 0191T. And then we have the 0449T for the Zen. Let's talk about that one. This is, of course, without extraocular reservoir internal approach into the subconjunctival space. And that's the initial device. And then we have, of course, the 0450T uh, for the additional device. So very important to pay attention to anatomy. Where are they putting these devices? What is their approach? So forth. It's time for another ICD-10CM break with Jennifer. Well, I'm back with another ICD-10 tip break. I hope you all enjoyed the episode so far. Since we're talking about ophthalmology, I, of course, wanted to bring in some very uh, important guidelines on diabetes mellitus. Uh, even though uh, we code diabetes in so many other areas, there's a lot to know when it comes to ophthalmology. And, of course, we have to know our different types of diabetes, right? 
Diabetes mellitus, of course, complications affect so many systems, especially ophthalmology. So when we think about uh, our decision uh, to choose a code, we have to know our type, type one or type two. And we do know, of course, uh, that the guidelines do tell us if the type is not documented, we always default to type two. So that's step one, right? Then we have to think, okay, what else do they have? Let's say they have retinopathy. That would be indicate an ophthalmic complication, retinopathy. So if it's type one, we know we're our E10, right? If it's type two, we know we're E11. So for our physicians, we wanna think type, which of course is type one or type two. We wanna think what is of course the complication and severity. So we have things like mild, moderate, severe. We also need to know if they have macular edema, yes or no. Uh, we need to know also uh, with type one, if it's stable. We need to know things uh, such as if they have prediabetes or gestational to know that when where we go with that, right? And of course, the same applies with our type two diabetes. We need to know all of those things. And when we come to those conclusions, when we read the documentation, it becomes a lot easier uh, when we have these little reference sheets, right? And of course, they don't replace our books, but if anything, they help us think a little bit more about how we, of course, review the documentation, how we educate our physicians. These items need to be there. Look at all these options that I have. I have to have more documentation to code appropriately, especially when it comes to, as we talked about, our LCD policies. A lot of them require very specific identification of the severity, um, the type of course, uh, and the complication. And if you code for MacGen, macular degeneration, you're probably aware of additional digits that we're not used to with other code sets, right? And I know we all get excited when we think about new code. So let's talk about some updates to ophthalmology. One that I'm particularly interested in thinking about is the update for new codes. Uh, finally, we have category one codes being proposed in 2022 to replace the category three codes 0191T and 0376T. Of course, these are those um, MIGS devices that we talked about, those uh, eye stents specifically is what those codes are for. And they're of course approved technology when used in combination with cataract surgery. But something that physicians should definitely take note of is the cost and reimbursement. According to the 2022 proposed rule. So according to the new proposed rule, what we understand is that they're thinking of assigning this new code that will combine both procedures, the surgery for the cataract and the stent into one code, right? Which means one reimbursement. Currently, the permanent code for the surgery, that cataract surgery, pays about $548, and the coding for the eye stent um, and the hydrus stent, if we use that, it's around $397. So when we think about them combining that um, into, of course, one code that could significantly impact the reimbursement uh, that a facility, of course, um, would receive that they're used to getting. Now, I will point out uh, that we do have this information uh, that was presented and researched by John Leppard, a healthcare analyst with a DC-based research firm, Washington Analysis, and he explained, of course, the reimbursement methodology and some of the impact uh, for physicians. And so what that means uh, when we have our rates for Medicare for the eye stent, you could see anywhere from a 5 to 15% cut. And for the physician payments uh, will significantly decline from 15% to 35% as part of that 2022 physician fee schedule. 
Well, that's the end of our show today. I hope you enjoyed listening, talking about ophthalmology and some new updates and some reminders, right? Well, before we go, I wanted to announce our 2022 professional coding course. This course is designed to help those interested in sitting for their CPC, Certified Professional Coder Exam with the AAPC, the American Academy of Professional Coders, or to sit for the CCS uh, P exam, which is with AHIMA, A-H-I-M-A. Both exams, of course, cover professional side of coding. They are very different. Some of them, of course, recommend certain other prerequisites, and we do have those available for you as well. You do get your course and training workbook included. You also have, of course, your student discount on coding books. We do have an optional anatomy course add-on for a really low cost of $250. You can add on the pharmacology for $199. All of our students do get their CPC, Certified Professional Coder, study guide from the AAPC for only $49 at your, as your student price. We do include job coaching with all of our courses. We always are here for you to help you find that job. We, of course, can't guarantee anything, but we're always here to support you and help you with the resources that you need to get your first coding job. We do offer mentorship uh, for six months. Those of you who are needing that, include it in your package. And of course, all of our students with any of our courses always get our annual CEU membership that comes with 18 CEUs. So you can get that first year as a certified coder started off right with all the CEUs you're going to need to stay active as a coder. You're gonna learn ICD-10-CM coding guidelines. You're gonna learn CPT coding guidelines. You're gonna learn those level two HCPCS coding guidelines. And of course, you're gonna be extra prepared. All of our students in 2020 and 2021 did pass their exam. So we are currently still at 100% success rate. And we are so thrilled that our students are being successful and having success in the industry. Several of our students have gone on to, of course, get their first coding job and they're loving it. They're loving learning all they can about coding and billing and, and of course, um, increasing their, their knowledge in coding. And if you need more education, you know we always have our podcast. We're always here to teach you free of charge. You can, of course, sign up for our patron squad and earn CEUs at $1, $5, and $10 increments, depending on your membership level. We love having our members. Uh, they are so great to us, and they support us. Do you want to get all of your CEUs in one weekend? Well, guess what, guys? This weekend is the weekend. This is our annual charity summit, Virtual Healthcare Summit 2021. We're going to have such amazing speakers. We're going to have great content. Of course, we have our sponsors, Epi Compliance, and we have our sponsors from Project Resume. You are not going to want to miss course connecting and uh, networking with them to learn more about what they do. So I wanted to kind of take a moment and just really break down what we have going on. Uh, this week or this weekend with the summit. We're going to have, of course, Back to Basics, ICD-10-CM Coding with Angel Kendall, one of our, of course, our instructors here at Ozark. We're going to have, of course, Arlene Smith, one of the AAPC fellows, talking about coding for common urology procedures. And Betty Hovey and I are going to be breaking down how to master the CCS exam with the HEMA, talking about, of course, some of those inpatient methodologies, uh, the billing and the coding, the PCS coding, the DRG uh, system, learning all about what we can about that. And then, of course, we have NCCI guidelines with Tiffany Hutchins. Kimberly Jolivet-Williams of, of course, Jolivet Metacoding Institute is going to be with us to talk about the 2021 Evaluation Management Cardiology Documentation Guidelines. We're going to have medical necessity and co for cosmetic and plastic surgery, and I'll be presenting that for y'all. And Jessica Miller, one of our great consultants, is going to talk to us about GI coding. 
that's for Friday. What's up for Saturday? Well, Saturday, we're going to start off with, of course, more E&M. We're going to talk about the problems addressed, that first section of the MDM with Linda Vargas. Appeals and denials management. We're going to have a two-hour presentation from the one and only Barbara Cabuzzi. I am so excited. We have Jessica Burke going to be talking to us about our orthopedic hand and wrist coating. We're going to learn from Christine Hall, a great educator, about how to calculate the data and risk in 2021. We have behavioral health, keeping up with coding and documentation standards. We're going to learn about the risk elements and the telehealth when it comes to behavioral health from Jose Delgado. We have, of course, the ins and outs of critical care documentation uh, coding from Cassie Connors. And of course, podiatry coding I'll be presenting. I have, of course, been coding podiatry for some time. I love talking about the foot coding and some of the billing aspects that we need to know for that. On Sunday, you don't want to miss staying compliant with telehealth from Christine Hall. And Dr. Jose Delgado will be with us to talk about the challenges facing healthcare professionals. We're going to learn from Cassie again on how to reduce physician burnout with these new E&M guidelines. We really need to help our physicians to stay with us, right? We'll uh, have Jessica Burke come back and talk about spine anatomy for us and some little bit of uh, preview into some of the injection coding for spine. Betty Hovey is coming back and she's going to talk about how we understand documentation improvement and how that, of course, affects documentation integrity. And then finally, we will learn from Dr. Hale Headley on the musculoskeletal anatomy and disease process. You don't want to miss this timely information. It's going to be a great event. It is a charity event, so we encourage you to join us and learn from the best in the industry. Well, that's it for us today at the Life as a Coder podcast. I want to thank you to our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance, and of course, our wonderful podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Wednesday for a new episode. We'll catch you then. Project Resume can make your medical coding dreams come true. From resumes to interview skills to navigating a successful career, Project Resume has the advice you need from coders you can trust. See all that we have to offer at projectresume.net. Be sure to reference this podcast when you place your order.